first is the button logic science showed up to boot double X. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome along to your Science on a Sunday with the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Thanks very much to Pat on Irish Echo there, a fantastic uh, episode and a great plug for us saying we're very entertaining. <laughs> My name is Broderick and it's a pleasure to be with you here on 98.3 2XX FM on this Sunday, and I'm joined in the studio by... Uh, Three men this morning. It's it's a very masculine uh, testosterone-filled studio today. Uh, we've got a couple of presenters with us. First off, good morning to Eamon. Hey, Broderick. And uh, we've also got Ben joining us. Good morning. Good to see you here, guys, to help me out today. And we've also got a very special guest joining us from the Australian National University, material scientist Dr Darren Goosens. Good morning, Darren. Good morning. Now, Darren is the uh, ACT Tall Poppy winner for 2010, and that's an award given out to... Uh, young scientists uh, by the Australian Institute of Policy and Science. Now, we're going to chat to him today a bit later on about his work with materials science, so we're really looking forward to that, Darren. Uh, but to start with today, we're going to start off the way we normally do, with a bit of this day in science, today being the uh, 19th of December. Ben, what happened on this day in science? On this day in science, in 1953, Robert Andrews Millikan died. Now, Millikan was an American physicist who is best known for his oil drop experiment, which determined the charge of an electron. In this experiment, a charged drop of oil was suspended between two electric plates, suspended where the force of gravity and electrostatic force were balanced. Now, using this method, he determined an experimental value of the charge of an electron at 1.59 times 10 to the minus 19 coulomb. Now, today's accepted value is extremely close to that, 1.60 times 10 to the minus 19 coulomb. Now, this experiment earned him the 1923 Nobel Prize in Physics. Yeah, pretty amazing accuracy there for back in back in 1923. Just what, 1% out, I think it was. Yeah, less than 1%. Less than 1%, amazing stuff. So, also in this day in science, 1958... The first known radio broadcast from out of space was transmitted. Now, it was actually President Eisenhower's voice. No, he didn't go into space, but he issued a Christmas greeting from a pre-recorded tape on a recorder aboard an orbiting space satellite. His full message was, This is the President of the United States speaking. Through the marvels of scientific advance, my voice is coming to you from a satellite circling in out of space. My message is a simple one. Through this unique means I convey to you all, mankind, America's wish for peace on Earth and goodwill to men everywhere. So this was broadcast from the first experimental satellite, Project SCORE, which had been launched two days earlier. Yeah, Merry so, Christmas. Mer- well, yeah, very nice Christmas message there from President Eisenhower. It's a, it's an extremely scratchy message. I, I looked it up on YouTube, the wonders of the internet now. We can listen to a message that was broadcast from space back in 1958. So I will post it up on the Fuzzy Logic Facebook page if anyone wants to have a listen later today. But uh, speaking of the space race, I believe something else happened interesting this day in space too. That's right, Broderick. Uh, on this day in 1972, Apollo 17 landed. Now, was uh, the last uh, Apollo mission to the moon and the last mission uh, to the moon during the centuries. Uh, well, during the, the 20th century. So, hopefully, sometime in the next few decades, there will be some tentative steps back there. 
But here's hoping. And also on the 17th of December, uh, 1903, another interesting anniversary that happened last week, was the Wright Brothers' first flight at uh, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. And also, everyone, I also want to make a very, very special announcement uh, for my dad. Even though he's up in Townsville, Dad, happy birthday. Well done. <laughs> Another important anniversary this week. Fantastic. Well, look, I've got a couple more from this day in 1871. And uh, I've actually got a question for you guys about these ones back in 1871. The first one, um, a guy called Samuel Clements. Now, he received a patent for something, and I want you guys to tell me what it is by the name of the patent. It's an improvement in adjustable and detachable garment straps. Do we have any ideas as to what that might be? Detachable garment trap. Is it the? Is it the belt? The, you, well, you close. You close. Uh, but would that be our suspenders at all? It is the suspenders. <laughs> that's right. Braces or suspenders. He patented uh, patent number one hundred and twenty-one thousand nine hundred and ninety-two. Um, suitable for vests, pantaloons, or other garments. Now, I think the most interesting part of this patent is the patenter himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know who he is, Dr. Darren? I can guess. Yeah. It's Mark Twain. It is it? Mark Twain. Yeah, Samuel Clements, better known as the author Mark Twain. Um patented that back in 1871. He also took out two other patents in his lifetime. Uh, one was for Mark Twain's self-pasting scrapbook and the other in 1885 for an educational game that helped players remember important historical dates. So, yeah, not just an author, also an inventor too. Now, also on this day in 1871, we had another patent taken out. And, uh, look, this one's uh, very impressive, but I've got the question for you guys again. It's for making paper stronger. Now, how on earth do you make paper stronger? Without make, make it thicker. Make it thicker would be one way, but without making it any thicker... Well, Roderick, I'm thinking, well, uh, perhaps a change of material away from like wood pulp into something a little bit more reinforced, perhaps? Oh, no, no, it's really simple. I, I like the ideas, but this is back in 80, very simple stuff. All it was was this was the uh, patent for corrugated paper. Or corrugated cardboard. So just putting those little bends in it um, suddenly makes paper a whole lot stronger. It can take a whole lot more weight. And um, this patent was issued to Albert L. Jones of New York City on this day back in 1871 and uh, later became the first U.S. manufacturer of corrugated paper. So, yeah, and... Uh Eventually, they actually put the uh, the single face and double face sheets to make it the corrugated cardboard that we know today. But um, they are that on this day back in 1871, some very interesting stuff happening. Now, this is um, also our last live broadcast for uh, this year of Fuzzy Logic, and I suppose we better do a little bit of a, a review of what's happened in this year of science. And Eamon, I believe you've been taking a look about what's happened this year in 2010. Well, that's right, Roderick. Uh, while it's hard to pinpoint the science story of 2010, uh, Dr Craig Venter and colleagues uh, grabbed the most attention when they announced they created synthetic life. Now, known as MICOEDS, uh, JCVI-SYN 1.0, the artificial bacteria may lead to a new branch of science, as well as a new round debate about the ethics of playing God. And on the subject of controversial technology, the father of IVF, Dr Robert Edwards, received this year's Nobel Prize for Medicine. While some experts continue to develop uh, to debate the relative risks of the technology, an Australian study found one IVF technique has the potential to affect the sex of the baby. Female fertility featured throughout the year with uh, European researchers claiming they've developed a test that can pinpoint when menopause will begin. 
An international study identified a group of uh, its genes responsible for the onset of puberty, mainly related to body fat, or researchers in Western Australia found girls with older brothers started their periods later than those without. Now, most of us know that not getting enough sleep is bad for us, but Dutch researchers found it can shrink the brain. And if you're a freaking fly, you may also be losing your short-term memory. And when it comes to reading maps, British and Norwegian researchers found men are no better than women. The research conducted on newly born rats found no difference between females and males when it came to knowing one's sense of direction. So uh, that was on rats, though. Surely we need to test it on humans to, to get the full effect. Absolutely. And I always wondered um, why on those GPS uh, direction finders there was actually like a female voice. Uh-huh. Um, apparently that made, uh, well, perhaps the male mind more amenable to suggestions. So. <laughs> and I do commend uh, them using uh, an Australian, um, well, accent uh, to help people find their way. Well, actually, you can you can pro- get uh, lots of celebrity voices now too, like Homer Simpson can direct your way or Stephen Fry or a whole lot of different people out there. So you can have anyone guiding you in your car. just need to find someone that you will listen to. <laughs> okay. Uh, now... Quite a few, uh, well, geophysical events happened uh, during the year as well. In January, one of the most devastating earthquakes recorded uh, ripped the island nation of Haiti apart. Then a couple months later, a large earthquake shook Chile, resulting in an equally devastating tsunami. And in tsunami, and in uh, September, the New Zealand city of Christchurch was jolted by a previously unknown fault line. And um, I s- still have friends over there. Um, one of them actually used to appear here on Fossilogic a couple of years ago, but. Um, they're trying to get things up to get, uh, together there, so they're always in our thoughts. Now, it may not have claimed in lives, but the Icelandic volcano with that unpronounceable name caused headaches for millions of European travellers and uh, news readers around the world. And despite its size, experts say the ash from that eruption did little to make an impact on global temperatures, so I suppose we, we can be grateful for that. And also this year, uh, climate change news focused more on politics and science. A review into the climate gate emails cleared scientists on manipulating data, but criticised them for being too secretive and defensive about their research. And in August, uh, a UN review into the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that's the IPCC, recommended changes to the way it is run and the way its science is presented. And that's a uh, note to us science communicators. We have to keep our priorities here, and despite the increase in rain across eastern Australia, 2002 is one of the warmest on record. And while the global financial crisis appeared to put a temporary dent in CO2 levels, Danish scientists warned that thawing permafrost is releasing large amounts of nitrous oxide, another powerful greenhouse gas. And this year we discovered how wet dogs shake off water, the gravity-defying technique used by cats to lap their milk, I was always amazed by that, and proved that the dung beetle is the strongest insect of all. But when it comes to insect records, none are more impressive than the Platysis affinis, a, spe- a species of bush cricket with testicles making up one-seventh of its body mass. Well done. <laughs> and in the length of genes is your thing, you'll be impressed by the Japanese plant Paris japonica, which has a genome 50 times la- la- larger than a human's. In the world of paleontology, researchers recreated hemoglobin from a woolly mammoth for the first time and extracted DNA from the eggshell of a moa bird. Well done. Ancient fossilised teeth found in Libya helped boost the out-of-Asia theory for human evolution. 
And an genetic study of ancient DNA confirmed farming originated in the Fertile Crescent about 11,000 years ago. Meanwhile, a group in the UK studied the finger bones of Neanderthals and came to the conclusion that they had more sexual encounters than humans. In the field of astronomy, finding a planet orbiting a distant star almost became a weekly occurrence. The Kepler Planet Finding Telescope is rumoured to have found several hundred, while Canadian astronomers claim to have captured the first image of one 500 light years away. As one study suggested, Uranus and Neptune may contain diamonds in their cores. Results from a NASA mission that crashed into a moon showed the lunar soil contains frozen water. And May, six volunteers were locked inside a spaceship simulator for 520 days to mimic a full mission to Mars. They are about to arrive on, on Mars and will return to well, Earth in November next year. Now, as far as epic space missions go, it doesn't much more edge of the seat than Hayabusa. After an engine failure, computer shutdowns, and a sampling that was not so perfect, the Japanese spacecraft limped home four years later with its precious cargo intact. And back on Earth, the Large Hadron Collider began its first full year of operation. While the universe didn't end up as some had feared, initial results suggest the multi-billion dollar facility already produced little big bangs. In Austria, two researchers suggested ball lightning might be all in the mind, while an Australian physicist believed it could be the result of fireballs from outer space. Scientists also announced they had measured the smallest nudge, 170 yoko newtons, uh, proved the taller you are, the quicker time passes, and set a record for the hottest temperature ever created, 4 trillion degrees Celsius. And finally, the why didn't we think of that award goes to the researchers at the University of Chicago and Cornell University for developing the Universal Gripper, a robotic hand made from a rubber balloon filled with ground coffee and attached to a vacuum pump. Very, very sensible. (laughs) Amazing stuff. Certainly lots of things happening this year in science. Huge amount of stuff for 2010. I'm sure there's going to be plenty more in 2011 to keep us interested in science and to keep us uh, bringing you lots of interesting stuff here on Fuzzy Logic 98.3 FM 2XX in Canberra. The time is now 11.48am and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM 2XX here in Canberra or you might be streaming online at 2XXFM.org.au. My name is Broderick and I'm joined by Ben and Eamon in the studio and our special guest for today from the Australian National University, Dr Darren Goosens. Now, he's the ACT Tall Poppy winner for 2010 and his research is uh, all into material science. Darren, can you explain to us what exactly is material science? Uh, well, let me ask you a question. What are you made of? Well, um... Skin and bone and, yep. and blood, yeah. Exactly. You're made of atoms, yeah, and they're organised in a very particular way. And depending on what the atoms are and how they're organised, all sorts of interesting properties can arise, including a Broderick, for example. <laughs> um, we're working on a slightly more prosaic level, so we're not necessarily trying to go all the way from atoms to life. Uh, people are working on that somewhere else, I suppose. Um, but, for example, you know... Um, the technology that we rely on every day these days, you know, computers or iPods and all these sorts of things, I mean, these uh, bits of technology rely on um, materials fundamentally. We've all heard of silicon chips, you know, and there's a reason that silicon chips are made out of silicon. There's a reason we don't have cardboard chips, <laughs> right? It's because cardboard doesn't have the right electrical properties, but silicon does. So, um, you know, but the question is, well, why silicon? 
And so what you want to do is go find out what it is about silicon, for example. We'll stick with that for an example. What is it about silicon that enables it to behave in a way that we can use it to make you know, computers and iPods and a billion and one other devices. I mean, there are silicon chips in washing machines, right? So they're everywhere. And, um, you know, so the question is, well, it's made, it's an arrangement of silicon atoms. It must be something about the actual properties of the atoms and how they're organised that leads to the useful physical, mechanical, whatever properties that, that these things have. So we want to know how does the microscopic picture of how the atoms are organised lead to these useful properties that are so important for so many people every day? Yeah. Definitely. And when we're looking at those properties, we're looking on the atomic level. So how do you get in there and look at those atoms? Because, I mean, clearly just a normal microscope isn't going to no. get us down there. An electron microscope can get you quite a long way. Yeah. I mean, we have um, facilities at... Uh, well, most Australian universities have some ability to, to look at to do electron microscopy, and you can, to some extent, directly look at atoms with, a, with an electron microscope. Um, the technique that I particularly tend to use is uh, what's referred to as uh, diffraction, which is essentially you take a sample of whatever you're looking at and you, you put a beam of, in my case, either X-rays or neutrons uh, on your sample, and then you work out where they go and um, you know where they where they go after they scatter off the sample basically depends on what's in the sample and how it's arranged. So you sort of work backwards. It's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, you've got you 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 put your beam of particles into the sample and you measure where they're going and measure they're going in all, all different directions. You measure them all as many of them as you can afford to anyway, and um, and then you use a bit of the knowledge that you might already have. Like, you, you know that it's a piece of whatever because you made the sample, so you know what's in there, but you might not know how it's organised. So you kind of bring together all the information you've got plus your diffraction experiment results and you try to figure out how those atoms are actually arranged on a on an atomic scale, you know, what's connected to what and and um, how far apart they are and whether they can move relative to each other or whether they're sort of locked into a little a little cube or something, say, and, you know, work your way up from there. Okay, and when we're looking at these little atoms inside a, a big sort of block of material or mm-hmm. something, are they are they all in the same way, or are they, like are they stacked like uh, you know like a house brick? Are they looking yeah, quite um, even and ordered? Well, I mean, it depends what kind of a material you're looking at. Yeah. Um, some materials are what are referred to as crystalline materials, and in fact, a regular arrangement of small building blocks is pretty much the definition of a crystalline material. Okay. Most people will be familiar with quite a few crystalline materials, the obvious ones being things like sugar and salt, right? You know, we can even see that they, they form little crystals, you know, with little shiny faces and yeah. stuff. But, in fact, a lot of other materials are crystalline as well. Um, metal, in fact, is mostly... Most metals are crystalline. Um, sand, things like sand and ceramics and building materials, therefore, are mostly crystalline. They won't be a single pure material. You know, bricks are made up of all sorts of different compounds but the individual components are mostly crystalline materials um obviously as i was talking before technological materials like silicon um gemstones all these sorts of things are crystalline and those are the ones where yeah they build up of tiny little repeating units so if you can work out what that one unit looks like you can just repeat it over and over again like building a wall out of bricks and and get a picture of what the the large lump of stuff looks like on the atomic scale some things aren't like that Right. Okay. Hair or skin or whatever is a bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, did, when we're looking at these things, what are we, what are we looking for in them to try and work out the properties of these these? Crisp- well, I mean, on on crude 
levels, I suppose, you, you're kind of thinking about, well, I mean, if you're looking at electrical properties, then uh, you know that some things are electrical insulators, right, and some things conduct electricity. So that's going to relate to the basic properties of the atoms involved, you know, whether they sort of give up an electron to the lump of stuff in general and then those electrons can flow around and make a circuit or whether they don't. And that's going to depend on, for example, how the things are bonded together, you know, whether all the electrons are being used up in the bonds or whether there's a few left over that can sort of move around, things like that. So it's kind of that connection between the properties of the individual atoms and the properties that arise when you bring those atoms together into an ensemble and, and relating that to what we can actually make use of. No, that's very interesting. Um, and I suppose in, in your research, are you looking at any you know, areas in particular um, for, for these these. Well, well uh, I guess um, one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in at the moment is um, a group of compounds, very broad group of compounds, uh, which we refer to as molecular crystals. So you might be familiar with the idea of a molecule, which is like a group of atoms all bonded together. And uh, these can stack together to form a crystal, just the way that individual atoms can stack together to form a crystal. And um, I'm interested in the way that these molecules uh, sort of talk to each other when they're when they're in a crystal. You know, there's a well, they're sort of bonded together, and the way in which that they bond together is going to give you the actual crystal structure that you get. Like uh, the particular phenomenon phenomenon that I'm, I'm particularly studying is is uh, referred to as polymorphism, which just means that the same molecule can give you different crystal structures. Okay. And, uh, and how does that happen? I mean, you would think it's the same thing. If you do the same thing with it, then you should get the same result. But in fact, you don't always. And, and this is just because the same molecule can pack in different ways depending on tiny little subtleties of how you go about making the crystal. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So when we're looking at polymorphism, we're looking at lots of different stuff. And you mentioned before when we were talking about polymorphism in pharmaceuticals. Mm. I mean, um, how, how important is that within you know those sort of drugs that we're taking within our bodies? Well, um, the particular relevance of polymorphism uh, to pharmaceuticals is is a couple of things that are relevant. The first one is that um, the different crystal structures that the pol- that the pharmaceutical could form in. Uh, Will have different, may have different rates of uh, how fast they dissolve in the body. So, if you say we're giving people a dose based on a certain expected rate of dissolution, and then you accidentally formed a polymorph that dissolved much faster, you might give people a dose that enters the bloodstream too quickly, and that could have detrimental um, health effects. Um, so, you want to be able to control that. You see, and and the basic idea is we want to understand how come the polymorphism can happen and what therefore what drives it on the atomic level and therefore how we can control it. And this could um, have a number of effects. I mean, one of them is that there are quite a few drugs out there where they can't control the polymorphism and they just know that only a relatively small fraction of what they're manufacturing is actually medically effective. So you you just get a bigger amount of drug than you need because most of it is in a form that's not very useful to you. So if you could control it, you could have more efficient doses. Um, uh, Similarly, it's even just in... You don't think of drugs as having mechanical properties, right? You think of them as medical things. But if you're going to manufacture it into a tablet, then it's got a... You know, it's a big industrial process. It happens in a factory. 
you know, just the way building a car happens in a factory. People start with various ingredients. They combine them into powders. There are binders. They crystallize them in certain ways. They want to grind them up, pellet them, stick them in a, in a little tube, you know, and all that stuff. And uh, different crystal forms can have very different mechanical properties, and some of them won't, dis- won't, uh, won't bind very well or won't form very good tablets. So you want to be able to control that from an industrial point of view. And the kind of one that uh, tends to grab people's attention is the, the patent protection one, which are, uh, uh, when people patent a drug, they have to identify it in the patent. You know, what is it that, that is a fingerprint for this drug so that if someone else makes it, you can say, that's my drug, you're not allowed to make that without paying me a great big license fee. And generally what they do is they actually crystallise the drug and then they get the diffraction pattern of the crystallised drug. The diffraction pattern is like a fingerprint. In fact, they even use the term fingerprinting. So you'll you'll get a substance and you'll get its diffraction pattern and that will be considered its fingerprint. And any time you see that diffraction pattern, you've got that substance. And if you could control the polymorph, because the diffraction pattern depends not on the particular molecule but on the crystal structure, or at least equally on the two, if you can get the same molecule to go into a different crystal structure, it would have a different fingerprint and the drug company might not be able to hold their their patent over your head if you went to manufacture it. So um, potentially that is of quite a significant sort of financial um, uh, impact as well. So, I mean, I'm more interested in just the basic physical principles of what is it about a molecule that governs what it crystallises into. And the basic a field of crystal structure prediction, being able to predict a crystal structure based on the chemistry of an isolated molecule is actually an area where a lot of people are working, precisely because of its ramifications for the pharmaceutical industry, but also for other things. The main two areas, they're kind of antithetical in a way where uh, polymorphism is really relevant. There's drug industry and the explosives industry. <laughs> because um, which polymorph you get of, a, of an explosive compound can have a huge effect on how stable it is um, and, you know, how explosive it is. So I guess, you know, you could blow people up and then try to cure them or something or with polymorphic materials. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. So we're looking at the, the polymorphism there. Now, when I, when I hear that in terms of drugs, I, my, my immediate thoughts go to something like thalidomide yep. where we had, that's just the, the molecular structure, I suppose, where they're, they're mirror images yeah, of each other. And right and left-handed. Yeah. That, that's right. And, and, you know, that had huge, huge effects on mm-hmm. um, with those right and left-handedness. Are we, do we expect such large effects when we're talking about polymorphism uh, in crystals? There, is, there are some, um, I guess, what you might call medical or therapeutic effects. I don't think there's anything documented of that magnitude. Um, but, you know, I mean, when I talked before about the fact that if you get the wrong polymorph, it could dis- dissolve too quickly. Effectively, that could have an effect of multiplying the dose by a great deal. And even some quite common drugs, you know, you don't want to get a massive dose of pan- paracetamol because, you know, it affects the, the organs. So I, that's probably the main thing. Um, having said that, I'm not a medico, and I don't, I'm not up on all the details of that, that side of the research. Okay. Well, going from... Um pharmaceuticals there and the, the small molecules you also do some work with what i suppose are, are harder materials yep. um and those sorts of things. can you explain some of the, the work you do there oh sure um so yeah so i tend to think of anything that melts below a thousand degrees as being uh, soft material yeah <laughs> um uh things that melt above a thousand we consider hard for the purposes of this discussion um <laughs> Uh, the main area we've been working on with, with hard materials is uh, 
there's a very broad category which are known sort of in the trade, so to speak, as, uh, as what you call functional materials. And these are, are materials that have some interesting physical property, often one that's tunable. Like uh, a classic example, and this is not what I've been working on, but it's a nice example, is materials which are known as magnetoresistance materials. And what happens in a magnetoresistance material or magnetoresistive material is that it's electrical resistance, so that's its resistance to the flow of an electrical current, changes if you put it in a magnetic field, right? Now, this might sound kind of, well, yeah, good, fine, <laughs> but what good's that to me? Yeah. But um, how do you think a computer hard drive works, right? A computer hard drive is a disk with a whole lot of little magnetic particles on it. And the way you read off the information in most modern hard drives is you have a bit of magnetoresistive material and it feels the magnetic field due to that magnetised particle. And because that magnetic field changes the, mag the electrical resistance of the read-write head of the magnetoresistive material, it, it uh, changes the current flow through it and that registers as your 0 or a 1 when you're reading off the hard drive. If, it's, if that read head's got high resistance, that might be a 0. If it's low resistance, that might be a 1. And the development of magnetoresistive materials was actually crucial in going from hard drives that were sort of, I don't know, as big as a, um, I don't know, big as a washing machine and stored one or two megabytes, to hard drives that are as big as your thumb and you stick in your pocket and have your entire music collection on. Yeah. And you wouldn't have that without these magnetoresistive materials. So, these functional materials are materials where you can change one property by changing another one, and. Um, the particular class of materials that we've been working on are what are called uh, piezoelectric materials or ferroelectric materials, where if you physically squash them, then you get a can get a voltage between the two fa between two opposite faces of a crystal or a, or even a ceramic sample of these things, and and that's uh, useful in a number of ways. Um, the reverse effect also happens. So if you squash it, you get a voltage on it. If you put a voltage on it, it changes shape. So you can use it uh, for things like um, creating sound waves. You put an oscillating voltage on it, then the crystal will change shape very rapidly. If you connect that up to the cone of a speaker, then you'll get a buzzing noise coming out the speaker, right? You make the speaker cone vibrate, but at very high frequencies. And in fact, these sorts of devices are used in things like um, sonar range finding. Fish finders, if anybody's a fisherman, <laughs> yeah. you know, these they will use these kind of devices, stuff like that. Um, so that's... Those materials, and, and once again, and then the converse, of course, is that, yeah, if you squash them, you get the voltage out. And so uh, people are using materials similar to these for a thing called energy harvesting or energy recovery. So any time you've got a bit of motion and a bit of vibration, instead of just sort of absorbing it, you know, in a shock absorber or just letting it drain away into the surrounding structure, you can harvest a little bit of that energy and, and capture it and turn it into electricity and use it for something. Um, so I don't know if you want me to... Yeah, well, one of my favourite examples of that is um, something from NEC Electronics where they've called, uh, put piezoelectrics into the TV remote control. So you don't need batteries for it anymore. It just gets the energy from pressing the buttons. Mm. But um, you're telling me a much more interesting example before of somewhere in Holland. Oh, well, yeah. As I say, uh, this is a, a bit of an interesting example. There's a, there's a dance club in Rotterdam in the Netherlands where... The, floor, the dance floor is actually mounted on these materials, these uh, uh, piezoelectric materials, and uh, as the people in the dance club uh, uh, move around and, and well, dance, 
um, the uh, the motion in the floor is actually the energy of that instead of just sort of being absorbed by all the foundations and that actually uh, is converted into electricity which then actually powers the the nightclub itself and uh, it works to the extent that when they've got a uh, a good attendance so uh, they they power all the equipment in the place and in fact have an excess of energy that they put back into the grid and get yeah. their you know I think they've got the same sort of scheme over there where you know you effectively run your electricity meter backwards and get a few bucks off the off the power authority. So, yeah, I mean, these sorts of things are very, uh, potentially very interesting technologies. Well, that sounds great. I mean, carbon-free clubbing, yeah. I think, is a brilliant application yeah, yeah, for yeah. it. And, I mean, and you can you imagine... You get a green stamp when you go in. Yeah. That's right. yeah. I can also think of very practical applications of this technology. For example, if you're walking down the street past the club and, and want to get a bit of a feel of whether it's really pumping and rocking or not, you could just look at how brightly or dimly the lights are flickering <laughs> in the weather. You could certainly imagine a situation where they've got some kind of a meter and they could sort of have the DJ going, if you let it drop into the red, you're fired. <laughs> you're not popular enough. You have to get right. somebody who can keep it going. Yeah, DJ's paid on uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, per, yeah. per what basis. That's right. Keep like it over that. 90% and you get a bonus. <laughs> Definitely. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 XFM. We've got Dr. Darren Goosens from the Australian National University on with us today. And you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XFM here in Canberra. Uh, my name's Broderick and I've got Ben and Eamon with me in the studio this morning. And our special guest, Dr. Darren Goosens from the Australian National University. We've been talking about material science this morning and uh, some of the work that's being done in your research there. But you also do some research at the Australian Synchrotron in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what what's the Synchrotron all about? What happens there? Well, um, it's the same research, of course. Uh, the, the synchrotron's one of the main tools that we use. And it's not just the Victorian or the Australian synchrotron in Victoria. Um, we actually do quite a lot of experimental work at the uh, the Advanced Photon Source, which is in Chicago. Okay. Um, and uh, so basically I, I sort of mentioned before how uh, one of the main techniques that we use is, is I called it X-ray diffraction. So what we're doing is putting a beam of X-rays onto our material, similar x-rays i guess to what you get in a hospital but um a very tightly controlled beam of x-rays very narrow very focused and uh, we put it onto our sample and we look at where they where they go and work backwards and figure out what the structures are inside of our material and basically what you get at a synchrotron is a very intense and if you like a very high quality beam of x-rays so they're very they're all the same wavelength they're all going in the same direction and it's very bright and these, this means you get a very well-controlled experiment. You get very precise information basically about where your atoms are and what your atoms are doing. Um, so you can do some experiments at your sort of home lab, but when you want to go get that really precise, high-quality information, you go somewhere like a synchrotron. And how does the synchrotron produce these amazing X-rays? Oh, with a wiggler. A wiggler. <laughs> is that is that four men in skivvies waving yeah, and yeah, pointing yeah, their yeah. fingers? That's right, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah. They, that's what they do. No, I don't think they need the money. Um, <laughs> the Okay, so the way synchrotron, a synchrotron is, is a particle accelerator, um, but it's doing something it's doing something other than particle physics. Mm-hmm. Um, you now people probably heard of things like the Large Hadron Collider in, in Europe, uh, where they um, colloquially might refer to it as an atom smasher. So what's happening there is you've got a particle with a charge on it 
like an electron, say, going around in a big big circle, and then they bang it into another particle, and they look at the bits that come off and do particle physics and try to find out something about sort of the fundamental building blocks of, of um, atoms and things like that. We're, but but any time you make a charged particle go around in a circle, it actually th- throws off um, radiation. If you imagine, I guess... It's not a very good analogy from the physics point of view, but if you imagine having a bucket on a string and you fill the bucket up with water and then you poke a hole in the bottom of the bucket and you swing it around your head, yeah. right? there's going to be water flying around in a, in a stream, right? And that's kind of the way these photons or uh, you know, X-rays get thrown off as these, as these particles go around in the synchrotron ring. Cool. So the basic way a synchrotron works is you create a charged particle, you accelerate it up to the working energy of the synchrotron, which... It's meaningless, but in the Victorian one, it's three giga electron volts. <laughs> and then you take that charged particle and you inject it into what's called the storage ring. So the main ring of the synchrotron doesn't accelerate the particle, just keeps it at that same energy, makes it go around in a circle, in a big ring. And then, um, now it's not, strictly speaking, a ring either, right? <laughs> it's more like a 50 cent coin. It's got straight sections and then corners, and then straight section, then a corner, and goes all the way around, and eventually you get back to where you started. So it's a bit like a... Uh, I think the Victorian one, I can't remember how many sides it's got, to be perfectly honest. But a 50-cent coin is a pretty good approximation. So every time you bend the particles, you get X-rays coming off. Um, and uh, so the sharper you bend them, the the more the higher the energy of the X-rays coming off. Okay, And that's because we're accelerating the particles when that's we're bending right. them? It's a basic bit of electromagnetism that when you accelerate a charged particle, you get electromagnetic waves coming off. Okay. Yep. Right? And, and it's a basic thing in quantum mechanics, I guess, that you either think of them as waves or particles, depending on what's convenient <laughs> to you at the time. And uh, so, so if you just imagine you've got your charged particle, like your electron or, or whatever, and then you bend it. You, to bend it, you have to change its velocity. And every time you're changing its velocity, you, you're accelerating it. And if you're accelerating it, it's throwing off some electromagnetic radiation. And you can then use that radiation to do your experiment. So you've got your corners in your 50-cent coin every time it bends, and you're going to get radiation coming off there. And you can do experiments using that radiation. And that's not, when you bend it to make it go around in the circle, that's called a bending magnet. So you can have a, an experiment that uses a bending magnet. Um, and those uh, beam lines will typically have exotic names like BM1 and BM2 and BM3. Um, but in the straight sections, you can put in what are known as insertion devices because you insert them into the ring or insert them into the path of the particles. And they'll be like arrays of magnets. And what they'll do is make the uh, particles wiggle up and down very quickly. Hence, they're, they're called wigglers. So if, if you can imagine the particle kind of tracing out a, a wave-like path, through the wiggler, each time it bends, when it makes a wave, it, it gives off a, um, some X-rays. And if you make it bend up and down lots of times, those little beams all add up, and you'll get a really bright, really intense and quite high-energy beam of X-rays coming out. Uh, and these are really very powerful beams of X-rays, you know, to the extent that if you stand in front of one, you know, you make yourself sick. Oh, um, and uh, and so... Uh, but you, But because they're so bright and intense you can do very rapid experiments on very small amounts of material and see a great amount of detail of, of the structure of the material. Um, so, so synchrotron x-rays um, are very useful for a lot of things. I mean, we use them to look at the structure of materials, but in fact, 
there's a whole range of techniques that they can be used for. Uh, they can be used for imaging, so just looking very, very closely at things like cells, looking at, at uh, within living cells, um, sort of using them as a form of microscopy. Uh, the beamline, the synchrotron in Australia, the one uh, down uh, near Monash University, actually has a medical beamline where they're using synchrotron x-rays and the eventual plan is to actually use them therapeutically for patients, for on people. Well, so, hold on, but you were saying these, these x-rays are hugely yeah. energetic, huge amounts yeah. of energy. How, uh, you don't have to use all of them. You can filter them and reduce them down to just what you want. Oh, how do you, how do you filter them oh, then? Well, metaphorically speaking, you stick a phone book in the beam. But um, <laughs> in practical terms, for example, you might have a, uh, a beam that's fanning out at a certain angle. Yeah. And you might not want to use all of that angle, so you might just stop it down so you can only use the middle part of the beam, for example. And obviously that's going to reduce the radiation. You can you can select out different wavelengths. So you're only using a small component of the spectrum. If uh, the analogy with visible light is, you know, you know what a rainbow is, you know, red, green and so on, you might yeah. just pick out one colour. Okay. Right? Yeah. So you throw away all the others and just pick out green. Yeah. Well, in X-ray terms, you can throw away all the other X-rays and just pick out one energy of X-ray and just do your experiment with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the synchrotron is not just for, for this sort of material science. Um, it's used quite a lot in biology for looking, as I say, at cells or at proteins. Protein crystallography is a very important technique where you uh, establish the, the structure of a protein. Usually you're particularly interested in some active site and a huge amount of important medical uh, science uh, relies on understanding how it is that a protein works because that will tell you, for example how a disease propagates in the body or how some metabolic process in the body happens. And, and these things all come about because of the actions of enzymes and proteins. And these enzymes and proteins do what they do, a bit like material science. They do what they do because they've got specific atoms in specific places doing specific jobs. How do you know where those atoms are and what they're doing? Well, you have a look using protein crystallography to synchrotron. Okay? So, Darren, to look at the... Uh, the structure of a particular protein is mm. it as simple as taking a tissue sample and, and firing a few electrons at it and seeing the way that they bounce off? Not at all. <laughs> um, you know, hide a multitude of sins, I suppose, when you, when you say uh, vague phrases. Um, a pro- typical protein crystallography experiment is actually quite complex. What they, what they will do, and I have to say I don't do these sorts of experiments, and if anybody's an expert out there and I get this wrong, Sorry. Um, Feel free to call in yeah, on yeah. 6247 and correct Dr. Darren. <laughs> yeah, just do it politely. Um, so a typical experiment will be something like they will actually genetically engineer a bacterium to produce the particular protein that they're interested in in excessive quantities. They'll grow a lot of these bacteria, and then they will switch on that mechanism that causes the bacteria to produce massive amounts of the particular protein. Right. So they'll, they'll then basically put it through a big sieve, there's a bit of vague science talk for you, but they'll put it through a big sieve and extract just the protein and leave behind all the, the bits of bacterium and stuff. And then once they've got just the protein, then they will put it in some sort of solution, mm-hmm. try to grow a crystal of it out of solution, just the way people might try to grow a salt crystal out of salt water, right? And then they'll take that crystal, put that on the beam line, and then do the crystallography. Okay, so it seems you... It's a huge process. You have to have a, a large amount of proteins. Yes. Um... And, and a very pure source of protein, Ideally, I guess, yes. too. And, and once you've got all of that together, mm-hmm. uh, how much of, do you actually have to fire the X-ray out? Well, Are we I mean, talking about uh, a few kilos? Or? No, no micrograms or milligrams. 
um, generally speaking. I mean, that's one of the reasons that you do these things at a synchrotron. The beam is so bright and intense and focused that you don't need a lot of material. And often you can't get a lot of material, so you couldn't do these experiments otherwise. So if we're talking about micrograms, that's um, I'm just trying to imagine mm. here, is that the size of you know a small grain of sand or a yeah, pebble? Yeah. Or oh, if you can see the crystal with the naked eye, it's big enough to do the experiment, usually. Wow. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, and so um, once again, I apologise to any protein crystallographers out there. But yeah, in broad terms, I, I guess that's sort of the process. Yeah. And then, I mean, once you've got the data, it's a whole career's worth of uh, learning and understanding to be able to actually you know, analyse it properly. Yeah, well, one of the... the the very early applications on proteins for X-ray uh, diffraction was the uh, the DNA structure, wasn't it? Well, yeah, big molecules. Anyway, I don't yeah. know that DNA is classified oh, as a no. protein. No, that's is it? my poor biology yeah. coming in there. Nucleic acid, nucleic yeah. acid, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's a very famous example where and in, uh, where the uh, there's a very distinctive. People heard the what is it, the, the double helix structure of DNA. Famous from yeah, yeah. Watson and Crick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Rosalind Franklin, Franklin. that's right, and Rosalind Franklin, who was the crystallographer. Um, they, uh, yeah, I mean, it, that, that double helix has a very... They had an X-ray diffraction pattern, and in those days they measured them... This was measured with a laboratory, I think, with a laboratory X-ray tube, um, you know, and they, they, measured the, they, they would measure the signal on film, essentially photographic film, which they developed, and they had these pictures, very interesting shapes... And they were, they were trying to figure out what on earth arrangement or what shape of molecule could give you that these sort of the shapes that they were seeing in the diffraction patterns and a lot of modelling and thinking and, and sort of um, you know that eureka moment came along at some point and, and that was the crucial um, thing in determining the, the structure of the DNA. But that's a very famous example, obviously, and um, been very important. Um, but a lot of the but it, yeah, the, those techniques are much more advanced now. And uh, and uh, they do thousands and thousands of structures and, and uh, yeah it's a really major enterprise and it's led to a lot of important medical medical breakthroughs. Definitely. And so we've also got the the research nuclear reactor there mm-hmm. and that's basically doing the the same thing but with neutrons is that correct? Yeah, in broad terms. Yeah. Um, the thing with neutrons, okay, so so your beams of X rays at your synchrotron are extremely bright and extremely intense. Neutrons are much harder to get very bright, very intense beams, just inherently because of the physics of the way they're produced. So you can't do experiments on such tiny samples and things. So there's not much protein crystallography goes on at neutron sources. But certainly there's a lot of work done looking at uh, biological molecules. Um, And I mean, particularly in solution, uh, using um, a range of techniques, and also uh, a lot of material science of the kind I was talking about before, looking at... Um, these sort of ferroelectric uh, materials and, and ferromagnetic materials and these sorts of things. Um, neutrons are particularly good at looking at the ways in which atoms uh, vibrate and move around in samples. Um, to put it simply as I can, uh, a photon, like an X-ray photon, has is a very high-energy particle, like... Um, the usual energies you're talking about of the order of tens of kilovolts of energy, um, whereas a neutron, um, a, sim- a neutron for a similar sort of experiment would actually be millivolts. So if you think of milligrams to kilograms, that's a six orders of magnitude difference. So that's the difference between a kilometer and a what a centimeter or a millimeter. Yeah. Difference between a kilometer and a millimeter. So 
because the neutrons are very low energy particles, the vibrations of atoms are also very low energy, and you can actually the neutrons sensitive to the vibrations of the atoms, whereas the X-rays being very high energy can't really see the atoms vibrating. So it depends what kind of experiment you want to do, whether you would use X-rays or neutrons. Yeah. One of the really nifty things with neutron scattering, and this is beginning to get a bit technical, but neutrons scatter off the um, nucleus of the atoms. So if you think of your atom as like a little solar system, the nu- neutron scatters off the sun, <laughs> right, the centre of the atom. And... Um, that differs from not just from chemical element to chemical element, like you know, sodium has a different nucleus to potassium has a different nucleus to whatever, but it even varies from isotope to isotope. So two atoms with the same number of electrons and the same number of protons but different numbers of neutrons are different isotopes. So you have, for example, hydrogen, which is one proton being orbited by one electron. That's your simplest atom. But you can also have a thing called deuterium, which is a proton being orbited by an electron, but there's also a neutron in the nucleus. So so the, the tricky thing with neutrons is because they scatter off the nucleus, normal hydrogen and normal um, and deuterium actually have opposite scattering powers. So if you make a sample of hydrogen, which has a bit of deuterium and a bit of normal hydrogen in the right proportions, it's actually invisible to the neutrons, which is pretty nifty. Hmm. And what that means is if you're looking at a molecule... You c- that has hydrogen in it, you can make that molecule such that bits of it are invisible. And so you can only see the bits that you're interested in when you do your experiment and separate out the bits that are interesting from the bits that aren't interesting. Uh, or you can make a molecule so that bits of it are invisible compared to the solved solution, but bits of it aren't. So you can look at which bits of the molecule are doing certain jobs chemically and isolate those bits out. So that's very technical. I probably yeah. shouldn't have gone. No, into that. no, it's interesting stuff. You know, just hiding little bits away yeah, yeah. by manipulating the that's atoms right. themselves. That's Amazing. Right. Well, look, I've got one more question for you, Doctor Darren, but um, mm-hmm. I want to have a song first. Oh, okay. So we're going to have a little break. And that was Vampire Weekend with Holiday. And we certainly are coming to holidays now. I'm very excited. I'm going to be heading home to Adelaide on Tuesday for my little holiday. And I'm sure lots of our listeners, you're going to have, be having your Christmas breaks. And uh, we're almost finished with Fuzzy for another year. We're going to be having our holiday. But I do have one last question for our guest today, Dr. Darren Goosens from the Australian National University. We've been talking about material science and the amazing stuff we can do with materials, silicon chips, a whole lot of different stuff, and the advances it's made uh, in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. But now we're in the 21st century. What's the, the future for material science, Darren? Well, I mean, that's kind of like saying what's the future for everybody, <laughs> as if for a hyperbolic statement. Um, well, I mean, I think certainly in terms of what we've been talking about today, one of the real trends is this ability to... Uh, watch watch processes as they happen. I mean, um, one of the advantages of the, the speed, you know, because you've got these very powerful, for example, beams of X-rays at the synchrotron, you can actually watch chemical reactions happening. You don't just have to look at what you put in and then look at what you get out and try to figure out how you got from point A to point B. You can actually do experiments where you, you, you make the uh, chemical reaction happen on the instrument and watch it happen. And so you can really understand how it is that things combine together to give you your, your final product. And, uh, and so, you know, these sorts of ability, the ability to do these sorts of experiments, I mean, in the narrow sense of the material science I was talking about, you know, the idea of these energy harvesting materials, there are materials out there that, that, that 
when you get one side hot than the other, they, they give you electricity. There are these ones where you squash them, they give you electricity, uh, and so on and so on. I mean, you could imagine a, a world where if we're harvesting all the energy that we're currently wasting, I'm wasting a lot of uh, aud- audible, audible energy right now, but, <laughs> but if, you, uh, if you could harvest all the energy that you're wasting, right, you know, imagine all the people that are generating heat that's going to waste. I mean, the average family car, you generate an enormous amount of heat that you then just get rid of to the air, right? Mm. You know, your fridge generates heat when it cools the stuff inside the fridge down. Every device generates heat. Uh, a lot of devices generate movement and so on. If we were harvesting all of that, then obviously that would have significant effects on the need for power generation. So you could imagine a situation where that could be very good from the whole climate change point of view. You know, if if most people were generating most of their own energy by harvesting what's currently being wasted, then, you know, that would have significant environmental effects. Um, if, uh, uh, yeah, so uh, in terms of um, biology and medicine and stuff, I mean, these synchrotron experiments, you know, people are now beginning to be able to do things like, as I say, looking at chemical reactions as they happen. I mean, looking at life processes as they happen potentially, you know, could lead to all kinds of interesting medical medical breakthroughs. Uh, I mean, uh, really, one thing you, you learn if you look at the history of material science is that you don't know where it's going to go. I mean, when when they invented the transistor in 1948, did they imagine Facebook? <laughs> I doubt it. And if they had, they might have stopped right there. Frankly, but that's, that's another issue. I mean, you know, the, 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 the point about material science is that in a sense, what it does is it puts tools in other people's hands. And you don't know what people are going to do with those tools. And, and I think that's one of the most exciting things about it is that if you a new material creates a new technology and then once that technology is out of the hands of engineers and it's into the hands of, you know, artists, then who knows where it, where it could go. So that's the kind of really big picture. You know, you come up with a whole new material and, and it could be a game changer. I mean, we haven't even talked about superconductivity, right? But somebody one day is going to make a superconductor that works at room temperature. And that's going to change the world completely, right? It's not going to be me, chances are, although, you know, I think about it from time to time. But somebody's going to do that. And then, you know, it's going to change everything again because um, it'll give you your magnetic levitation trains and and save you, you know, 30% of your power generation currently disappears in the wires. So it'll once again be a good thing for climate change, all, all these things. So, you know, that could happen tomorrow because... For 50 years, people thought that the highest temperature you could get for superconductivity was sort of 20 Kelvin, which is, you know, pretty cold. And then in 1987, out of nowhere, people invented ones that operated, you know, at sort of 40, 50, 70, 100 Kelvin, which is, you know, a big jump. And that came almost out of nowhere. So tomorrow, you know, somebody could be doing the experiment right now um, that's going to change everything for us. You just don't know. You know, uh, so... Either way, though, the experiments are getting very fast and powerful and very subtle, so yeah. it's very nice. Oh, it sounds like an amazing future ahead. And yeah, if you yeah. do discover that, that room temperature superconductor and win the Nobel Prize for it, please don't forget us here at Fuzzy Logic. Oh, we'd no, love no, to... No. Uh, That's fine. We'd love to... Uh, I want to have a go of the hoverboard. The hoverboard, yeah. 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 <laughs>
That's right, and we'd love to promote the fact that we we, we interview Nobel Prize winning scientists here yeah. on on yeah. Uh, community radio in yeah. Canberra. Well, we'll, 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 we'll yeah. when that happens, then we'll worry about it then. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Darren. Right. Thank you. It's been, um, thanks for the invitation. Oh, it's been a pleasure to have you here, and uh, thanks for joining us too, Ben. For uh, no worries, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank yeah. you, Brother. Thanks, and thanks, Simon. I believe you got one last message for our listeners. I well, just very quickly, just a friendly reminder that this Wednesday at ten thirty a.m. It's the summer solstice um, for this part of the world. So if there's any ceremonies happening, that's a good one to have it. And uh, for me personally, it's been great to be on uh, Physiologic all this year because this Thursday I'm travelling north to the tropics. Sounds lovely. Yeah, well, on behalf of all the uh, Physiologic producers and presenters from this year, I'd like to wish all our listeners a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We'll be back bright, bubbly and refreshed in 2011 and ready to bring you a whole bunch more science on a Sunday. For the moment, though, we might go and get some bright, bubbly refreshments. Oh, that sounds like a great idea, a little Christmas cheer.